They do escape from the dryer. They plan it in the hamper the night before. Tomorrow, the dryer. I'm going. You wait here. The dryer door swings open. The sock is waiting up against the side wall. I had never seen Seinfeld before. When I, when I say I had never seen it, I had seen some episodes before. I'm not an animal. But I had never watched Seinfeld all the way through. Seen every episode. Like I've seen some here and there. Big fan of his stand-up. But I was a little young in the Seinfeld generation. Then I just never went back. Like in the last 20 whatever years, I never bought the Seinfeld DVDs. I never really stopped when scrolling through the guide. Never fired up the streaming. I've stopped sometimes in the guide. I've seen some clips. I know some of the episodes. But I've never just watched the entire series. And last week, it, it finally had to end. I finally fired it up. Andrew Doughty here on the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Check out the pod on Twitter at High Motor Pod. You can send mailbag questions for upcoming shows or guests to that account. Or you can send them to me at adoughty 88 So finally, in 2019, 20 years after the show ended, I'm finally running through Seinfeld, and it feels really good. It feels like I haven't seen Shawshank Redemption yet. When you heard about it, and you heard about it, oh, you've never seen Shawshank? Nope, haven't seen it. Wait, you've never seen Shawshank? Nope, never seen Shawshank. And then you finally see it? I saw it junior year of high school. I still remember it so well. 2006 in a film study class. Who here has seen Shawshank? Doubt it. You've never seen Shawshank? Nope, never seen it. Just put the damn thing in, press play, so I can see what all the fuss is about. And then I saw Shawshank, and I still remember that day. And now I'm finally seeing Seinfeld, and I'm excited for myself. It's like when you hear somebody else is watching Breaking Bad for the first time. First, like, what in the hell took you so long? And B, like, my God, I envy you. You haven't experienced Walter White yet. You haven't experienced any of Breaking Bad yet, you lucky son of a bitch. Okay, this week on High Motor, NFL Draft, NFL Draft the entire episode, and then we're going to do a giveaway after NFL Draft talk. First, in a moment, a conversation with Dane Brugler, NFL Draft analyst for The Athletic. I just talked to him a moment ago, so I'm going to play that call. He dropped a mock draft 5.0 on The Athletic last week. And this isn't just a mock draft. This is a seven-round mock draft. It said it took him a few days to put this together. With him, we ran through some dream picks for some teams. Uh, also talked about a lack of corners in this class. A lot of good stuff from that call. And then after Dane, it's going to be Thor Nystrom, NFL Draft, and college football writer for Roto World. And after Thor hops off, I'm going to throw out a giveaway question. It'll probably be about something that Thor or Dane said during the calls or something that both of them said. I'm going to throw out a question at the end of the show. You send the answer to at High Motor Pod. Tweet the answer or DM the answer to at High Motor Pod. That's the only way to send the answer to the giveaway question at the end, and you could win some free crap. Tons and tons and tons of draft talk on the High Motor Podcast today, so let's jump in. The NFL Draft, one week from Thursday, first round on Thursday, April 25th. Dane Brugler, NFL Draft Analyst for The Athletic, is kind enough to chat today. And Dane, you just dropped a mock draft 5.0, all seven rounds, 254 picks in there. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a big one. And you called this a a what-I'm-hearing mock based on buzz around the league. So I'm curious, how do you balance or 
or maybe separate is the better word there. How do you separate information that you're getting directly from teams, from players, from agents, etc., with what you're seeing on film and who you think is a good fit? What's the difficulty of trying to determine, you know, what's just smoke and what's a real, genuine like or dislike from a team? Yeah, I mean, there's so much information and misinformation this time of year. You know, I think I've been doing this long enough where I know, just from past experience, you know, when when one person tells me something, it's, I, I can take it as gospel. When another person tells me something, I know it's maybe a 50-50 shot of being right. I mean, I, you know, I, I've leaned on my sources, uh, you know, en- enough in the past where I have a good feel for who's blowing smoke, who's, uh, you, you know, really being truthful and that kind of thing. So that certainly helps. Just been doing this for a while. Um, but, you know, I think with, obviously with mock drafts, what I feel, my opinions, really don't matter at all. Um, I, I try to not include my opinions at all in mock drafts. It, it's always, you know, my rankings, my reports, that's where my opinions and what I think factors in. Mock drafts are only what I'm hearing and trying to base it off of past trends, you know, understanding what certain teams look for in certain players. Um, it's not necessarily just, okay, ABC, that this is their needs, so let's just match it up. Just understanding what position teams usually go for in certain rounds, certain parts of the draft. Um, they stay away from a certain type of player, um, those types of things. So doing a mock draft like that is certainly challenging. It took me, gosh, probably three days to complete just to fully understand and you know, make sure that it matched up um, so I could at least defend each pick. You know, Obviously, I'm not going to be right. It, you know, It's not really meant for accuracy. It's meant more for just a scenario like okay if it could fall this way but I didn't include any trades so you know there'll be a a trade in the top 10 on you know Thursday night of the draft and it'll screw the whole thing up but you know I I could at least defend every single pick that I made uh, you know for one reason or another based off of what I'm hearing or based off of what you know teams uh, specific teams have done in the past their trends what they are looking for what their needs are so uh, it's certainly an interesting exercise you said you talked to some people, and, and you've been doing this long enough where when you talk to certain people, you can take it as the gospel. So this year, I'm curious, are you hearing anything, something that you do believe to be true from whoever you're talking with, that you just don't understand at all this year about a certain player or, or a certain team or a certain position that you just can't fathom why a team or a group of teams feel that way about a prospect? And not necessarily somebody that, that you're hearing a team loves that you don't necessarily love, but just anybody you know positive or negative that you're hearing that you believe to be true where you just can't wrap your head around why a team or a group of teams are feeling that way about a certain guy this year. Uh, I think when you look at these quarterbacks, and look, quarterback, beauty's always in the eye of the beholder. And so there's always varying opinions, and that's especially true this year. I'm just, and it doesn't surprise me that Kyler Murray's as highly thought of as he is by a lot of people. It doesn't surprise me that he is really the clear favorite to go number one overall, but I am surprised that some people, um, some teams, and some evaluators believe Drew Locke is a better player and will be drafted ahead of Dwayne Haskins. I mean, that really surprised me. Uh, and I'm okay if you have issues with Dwayne Haskins. Uh, you know, I certainly understand it. When your sample size, you worry about the lower body and just how, you know, the, the consistency issues that come from that. Um, but if you have issues with Dwayne Haskins in those areas, it surprises me why 
teams or evaluators would be okay with Drew Locke. And sure, yes, you have more of a sample size, uh, four-year starter in the SEC, but when the play starts to break down, his mechanics fall apart, he has a, a golden arm, I mean, he can do anything he wants with the football, but it really affects his decision-making, his accuracy, and you know, I, you saw some improvements throughout the year, throughout his career, uh, but still not to the point where I feel really comfortable taking Drew Locke in top 10, top 15, uh, reminds me a lot of Derek Carr when he was coming out of Fresno State, but Dwayne Haskins, uh, you know, yeah, only a one-year sample size, 14 starts, uh, worry about the lower body in terms of his ability to navigate the pass rush and buy those uh, extra chance throws, but I'm betting on the arm, I'm betting on uh, those issues being experience issues, not talent issues, uh, so uh, just surprising to me that so many have Drew Locke and some even have Daniel Jones ahead of uh, Dwayne Haskins. Last week, and you tweeted that at least one corner has been drafted in the top 25 every single season since, I think, 1975 was the year. So entering uh, 2019, that's 44 straight drafts. We had two last year, I believe, and then four the year before in the top 25. But, you know, as you noted, there's a very real chance that streak could end this season. We might not even see a safety or a corner in the top 25. Do you think that's just a weaker corner class, or are other positions pushing corners just farther down the board? On both, you know, I think the defensive line, the offensive line, that's going to dominate in the quarterbacks. That's going to dominate the top 20 picks. We're going to see probably four quarterbacks come off the board. We're going to see double-digit defensive linemen come off the board, uh, or close to it. Maybe not double-digit, but close to it. Uh, we're going to see three or four offensive tackles, uh, maybe five offensive linemen total come off the board. So uh, we're going to see those positions dominate. And look, the corner – it's certainly an important position. Um, it, it's a top three, top four position in today's NFL. Um, some would even say it's number two behind quarterback. So, you know, there's obviously a chance that corner will be overdrafted. A team will reach on one of these corners in the top 20 picks. But it's there's a, it's also a realistic possibility that Byron Murphy, Greedy Williams, Rocky Sin, whoever, DeAndre Baker, whoever your favorite corner is, there's a chance he won't be uh, off the board in the top 25 picks, and teams will decide, hey, look, we like the the depth on day two at corner. You know, we feel good about getting Julian Love from Notre Dame in the second round, or, you know, one of the bigger corners, Joe Juan Williams from Vanderbilt, Isaiah Johnson, Houston. Uh, we feel good about getting one of those other corners in the second round, so we're going to go defensive line here, or offensive line, and we'll get our corner uh, who's maybe not too far off from the corner we would draft here in the first round. We'll just get that corner in the second round. So I think there's going to be a lot of that thinking. And because of that, there's always a chance that uh, we could see corner and probably even safety shut out in the top 25 picks, which would be really surprising. You know, it hasn't happened in, what, yeah, 44, 45 years. So uh, it would certainly be surprising, but, you know, I think it's certainly possible as well. So going back to quarterback really quick, so something you just said there, you said that you think we could see four quarterbacks going in the top 20. I assume you mean that would include Daniel Jones. Do you think that ultimately will happen? Do you think Jones will be a top 25, top 20 pick? Yes. I, I think that the uh, the storyline will be how many quarterbacks go in the top 17. You know, Now the Giants own the 17th pick. Um, how many quarterbacks go in the top 17? That'll be the big, big question. Um, and... I do think if I have to, you know, put my money on something right now, I'd say all four quarterbacks wind up going top seventeen, and there are a lot of teams in the twenties hoping that happens. So you know, push another good player down the board. Um, but Haskins, Murray, uh, Drew Locke, and Daniel Jones. 
you know, finding the exact, uh, you know, landing spot is a little tougher. Um, in my mock, I went Kyler Murray won Oklahoma, which I think is the overwhelming favorite. Um, I went Drew Locke uh, 10 to the Broncos, which I don't have any confidence at all. I think there's a good chance that John Elway just rides with Flacco and they, they don't go quarterback, at least early uh, in this year's draft. I think that's, that's probably the more realistic scenario than taking a quarterback at 10. Um, I had Bengals taking Dwayne Haskins, which, you know, I think a little bit is I want to see it just because I think Dwayne Haskins would be a perfect landing spot for him um, going to a situation where uh, Andy Dalton's starter and he won't be pressing the action, can develop at his own pace. I think it just makes a lot of sense. And then I had Daniel Jones 17, the Giants, which he might not even last that far. The Giants uh, might have to take him at six or might have to trade up. 17 if they want to get him. So I do think it's a realistic possibility that all, all four are going to top 17 selections. Dane has agreed to play a game here. I'm going to spin the imaginative wheel, uh, pick a team, and he's going to give us the most realistic dream pick for that team. So yeah, it's a dream pick, but we're also going to um, say it's the most realistic dream pick. And first, it's going to be it's going to be the Atlanta Falcons. So they're at number 14. That's their highest pick, I believe, in four years. And that was, that's when Vic Beasley went number eight in 2015. So Atlanta, Dane, who's the most realistic dream pick for them at number 14? I think it's Ed Oliver. Um, it, it just it makes too much sense. Pair him with uh, J.D. Pair, Grady Jarrett. Um, it really helped the interior of that line. Uh, that helps uh, you know Beasley uh, tack on the edges. Uh, it helps everybody. Um, and because because Ed Oliver is such a scheme fit, that's how the NFL views him. Um, you know, he's just not going to be for everybody. Uh, because he is such a scheme fit, I think it is. There is at least a realistic scenario where he does get uh, that far down. Is it likely? No. Uh, but I think there is at least a realistic scenario where it does happen because, again, he's not going to be for every team. And if the draft matches up perfectly, uh, you know, he could be there for Atlanta. Minnesota, the Vikings at number 18, which, yeah, it falls in the same category as the Falcons. That's that's the Vikings' highest pick since 2015. They picked uh, Mike Hughes 30 last year and then the no first-rounder in 2017, obviously. Who's the dream pick for the Vikings down there at number 18? I would say Jonah Williams from Alabama. I think he gives them tackle guard versatility. Um, I, he's just a rock-solid player. For me, he's a top-five player in this draft. Um, but a guy that doesn't meet certain thresholds for certain teams, and because of that, he could fall a little bit. Doesn't have elite arm length, doesn't have elite foot quickness, uh, redirection skills, uh, and because of that, he could slip a little bit. And if he does, uh, you know, I think it'd be a perfect scenario for the Vikings uh, because, again, he can help out a tackle or guard. Um, he, he's a guy that is so technically savvy. Um, understands uh, what defenders are trying to do to him so he can counter. Um, very instinctive at the position. And, you know, he understands what he's doing with his hands, with his feet. He's always in sync. Um, sometimes he can struggle with long-armed players. I can get to a, his chest and he can uh, be put off balance. But for the most part, uh, he's just a rock-solid player. So I'm getting him at 18. I feel really good about my first round. And plugging him in from day one and my offensive line being a lot better. Another one here we got, 
we have the Eagles at number 25. So they have three picks in the first two rounds. Remember, they got that additional uh, second-round pick from the Ravens in that deal that led to the Ravens taking Lamar Jackson, number 32, last year. I know we're a little bit down the line here. A lot of things could happen between 1 and 24. Uh, you even said we'll probably see a top-10 trade on Thursday night, and odds are pretty good we'll see another one before the Eagles go at 25. But let's say the Eagles stay at 25. Who's the dream pick for them at number 25? Dream pick, yeah. It is tough when we get down to twenty-five, and you know, I think dream pick maybe like a Brian Burns if he was last that long. I just don't know how realistic that is. I, I think the most trying to keep it realistic as possible. I think Cleveland Farrell probably or Christian Wilkins, one of the two Clemson defensive linemen, uh, making it to twenty-five would probably be the most realistic scenarios. With Cleveland Farrell, he's a guy who isn't a you know, quick twitch tester, a guy that's just going to, you know, he's not your Von Miller type of pass rusher. He's more, I understand what I'm doing with my hands and I'm going to break down blockers and, uh, you know, use certain segmented steps so I can get to the quarterback pocket. Um, and that's why, because he's not an elite athlete, because he doesn't have an elite trait, he's not going to be a, a no doubt about it top 20 pick. But if he could last the 25, that would certainly makes sense for them. They're always looking to upgrade uh, on the edges. And then Christian Wilkins from uh, his teammate at Clemson, who uh, has, he can, he has some hiccups versus the run. Uh, you know, he can be washed out of the hole, but he has flexible hips, uh, quickness off the ball. He's a really instinctive guy. And so I think he can create that backfield disruption and give, uh, give the Eagles an interior presence that I think they, they, they'd love to have. So they're always looking to upgrade on the defensive line. One of the two Clemson players, Christian Wilkins, Cleveland Farrell, I think that'd be a dream scenario at 25. And two guys that I think are at least a realistic, realistic chance that it could happen. All right, Dane, let's do one more here. And there we go. Finally, have a top five pick. Okay, the Bucks at number five, which um, you know, kind of carrying with the trend here, is also their highest pick since 2015. And they've been outside of the top ten, I believe, each of the last three years. So, Dane, who's the dream pick uh, at number five for the Bucks? I'd probably go with Josh Allen. I think from, you know, Ed Drescher from Kentucky, I think that uh, when you talk about Todd Bowles coming in, uh, bringing in a 3-4 uh, scheme, I think Josh Allen would be an ideal fit for what Todd Bowles is looking to do. I, you know, he can provide an edge presence, uh, rushing the passer. He can help versus a run. He can drop uh, versus a pad. Uh, just do a lot of things with Josh Allen in, in Todd Bowles' scheme. And so I think that Josh Allen uh, is probably going to go to the top four. Uh, if Kyler Murray goes one, Nick Bosa goes two, Josh Allen likely goes three to the Jets or to the Raiders. But if he's still around at five, which, you know, let's say we have a trade-up, you know, a team going to get a quarterback, or, you know, Quinton Williams is probably going to go three or four. Uh, and then, you know, the, one of the, those two teams surprises and takes another player. Uh, Josh Allen at five uh, would, would make a perfect sense for the, for the Bucks. give them uh, consistent edge presence and a guy that I think really fits Todd Bowles' defense. That's Dane Brugler. You can find him on Twitter at DP Brugler. I believe that seven round uh, mock draft 5.0 is pinned atop his Twitter page, so you can check that out there. Hey, Dane, I really appreciate the time. Uh, thanks a lot and take care. Anytime. Thank you. 
Thor Nystrom on the High Motor Podcast, college football and NFL draft writer with Roto World. And uh, you, sir, are a tad busy at the moment, so we're just going to jump right into it. And we're going to jump right into this. I just played this game with Dane Brugler, and I want to keep it rolling with a couple of more teams here. But with him, we did some dream first-round picks for that team. I want to get into a couple uh, specific scenarios. And right before you hopped on, I already randomly sorted out a couple of teams here and have a scenario for each. And First, the Detroit Lions popped up to the top of my list. They have the eighth pick, and as of right now, their, their picks are pretty simple. One in each of the first five rounds, and then a couple in the sixth and the seventh. And the scenario here is a lot of mocks have them taking TJ Hawkinson at number eight. Uh, so let's just say that happens and are looking at either offensive line or edge help in the second at number 23. And I know once we're down to, uh, excuse me, 43, and once we're down to 43, a lot of things can happen before then, but... Let's say they are looking for offensive line or edge at 43. Which position are you projecting more mid-second round value right now? Are it more likely that a strong edge player is there at 43 or offensive line? In which direction would you go? Might be edge, actually. I mean, that's it's an interesting question because both of, both those positions are, are pretty deep. Obviously, it's a transcendent edge class, and it, it's got a little bit of depth to it as well. And then you know, at offensive line, uh, we may not have – I mean, I, I think that Andre Dillard's a top-ten guy, but, you know, the, as far as, like, the top ten, the Jonathan Ogden type, you know, top three prospect, we don't have that. Um, but there is a lot in that second to third uh, tier with the offensive line. So I think there'll be – you know, if, if the Lions were earmarked uh, one of those two positions in the second round, I, I think a good guy is going to drop to them. One guy that I think would be ideal and would be very fun, uh, specifically because he's a local kid, is Chase Winovich is a guy that could be there in the second round. I, I think that would be a great fit. And I think that uh, Chase Winovich is an underrated kid. I mean, he was a kid who soundly outplayed Rashawn Gary in college. And then he goes, you know, to the, the pre-draft process. People didn't think he was he was very athletic, um, which was a, a pigmentation issue outside of his control. But he tested as the good athlete that we saw on the field, you know, tested 71st percentile. So Winovich is going to be a good player um, and he's going to fall. And, Winovich was a better player than, like I said, than Gary throughout his career. Um, and there's, there is a non-zero chance that Chase Winovich will also have a better pro career than Rashawn Gary. So I think if the Lions had that opportunity to keep that kid local, um, I would absolutely advocate for something like that. And the other scenario here, another team was the Buffalo Bills, which actually worked out pretty well because uh, you and I were kind of kicking around a scenario for the Bills on Twitter, I think it was a couple days ago, and you said, for example, if they were to take Ed Oliver at number nine, and then let's say go offensive line in the second, but they really want to grab a receiver in the third. So again, for those listening, Oliver in the first, offensive line in the second, and then receiver is the pick, or maybe let's say fans are curious, if they are going to go receiver, who could be there? So they have number 74 in the third, who are the potential receiver targets? And this isn't even really specific to the Bills. For any team looking to add a wideout in the third, in, in that mid to late third range, which guys could be there? Which guys could unexpectedly fall down there? Uh, you know, who would you take if you're sitting there like in that, that late 60s to early 80s spot if you are looking for wide receiver help in the third? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because the receiver class in some ways, like the offensive line class, there's something for every flavor but there's not that guy where you can just be like, oh, he's going to the Hall of Fame for sure, right? And so, you know, especially when you get down to the third round, you know, with a position like receiver, who's going to be there and what flavor do you want? Are you looking for a big slot? Are you looking for a small slot? Are you looking for an outside guy? Looking for speed? Looking for possession? Whatever. They, they, you know, there's a lot of different guys and, and the scenario above them, it'll be interesting to see who's there. But guys they could look at, 
Um, you know, guys that could potentially fall. Could Debo Samuel fall? Probably not. Uh, but if but if he did, you know, he's a guy that I compare to Christian Kirk. I, you know, I, I I would look that way. Um, uh, Andy Isabella is probably a guy that that would be there that I would advocate for. You know, was just fabulously productive at UMass. Um, world class speed. You know, I, everyone knows he beat Denzel Ward in a couple of races in uh, in high school. Um, but because of the way he plays and because of his profile, it's wonky. And so, you know, and, and also the level of competition. So, you, you, you know, a lot of people do not trust that production and don't think it's going to translate to the next level. You know, Andy Isabella is a guy who has, you know, uh, Wes Welker's body, but he's got, you know, more of the game of like a Tyler Lockett, you know, and, he, and he's, he's a body catcher. And so it's like, you know, you're going to he, – he's got more of an outside game with that speed. He's a downfield guy. You know, his yard run per route in, in college is one of the top in the class, you know, with Wes Welker's body. But can he be a guy that can win downfield in the NFL when he's got a small catch radius and catches the ball with his body? I'm not sure, but he dominated so consistently for so long, even at the level that he was at. Um, and then he also, you know, turned in the, the athletic profile that, that we thought he might, that I would trust that, especially in the third round. You know, we're not talking about a first-round pick. It's, it's a guy who – you know, absolutely could develop into a starter in short order. So he's a guy I would look at. Another guy that I would love to take a shot on then if he's there would be Jalen Hurd, you know, a guy that you take him, you know, obviously he was the, the former five-star running back at Tennessee, started over Alvin Kamara earlier in his career, leaves Tennessee, you know, gets off the, the, the shipping, uh, the sinking ship, you know, that the Butch Jones was, was helming, goes to Baylor, wants to play receiver, um, you know, in, in, in year one, you know, he sat out the year, um, you know, just learned the position. Year one last year as a receiver, you know, Baylor played him as a power slot and he was good. And, you know, at that, at, in that role, you know, to start the season, it was a lot of, you know, Jalen run six, seven yards downfield, turn around um, and, and Baylor would just get him the ball. Um, and they basically get free yardage out of it. The other thing. So I know that he's going to be able to do that in the NFL, that that will translate 1000%. Jalen Hurd will be an effective power slot in the NFL. You know, I don't know what his upside is there, but I know he'll do enough to get by at least at the very least. The other thing I know he'll do outside, you know, out of the box from day one is he can be a short yardage specialist as a running back. Um, you know, I, I don't see this written a lot when people write about Jalen Hurd, but whenever Baylor needed two, three, four yards, they always went into the I formation and harkened back to, to Hurd's Tennessee days and had Hurd, you know, be the running back and try to grind out three, four yards, and he almost always did. You know, we're we're podcasting right now from the Twin Cities, you know. As, for Vikings fans, that he could think of him as a sort of like uh, Leroy Horde type, you know, just as a sort of short yardage grinder when you need that situationally. So I think you get those two things outside the box. And then the other things that he could develop into, you know, you potentially could get an outside receiver out of it. We'll see on that. You know, there's a lot of development that needs to happen before, before that happens. But Hurd was, did enough initially at the, the slot position. He proved the concept for Baylor there that they started using him on the outside later in the season. And, um, you know, Kurt acquitted himself pretty well. Um, he's a kid who's 6'5", 225, and is extremely athletic. You know, coming out of high school, five-star athlete. They didn't know if he was going to play running back, tight end, receiver, linebacker, safety. So he, he can do a whole lot of things. He's a guy that I would take a flyer on if he's there. Kelvin Harmon, a uh, kid from NC State, he might fall because his measurables aren't the best, but he's a really good possession receiver. So if the Bills are just looking for sort of like a high-floor guy that they know will be able to contribute, Harmon could be that kid. Um, another guy, if you want to shoot for upside, that might be there, although his stock at this point might have gone up so much that he could sneak into the second round is Miles Boykin uh, from Notre Dame, a guy who basically tested as one of the most athletic receivers to ever come into the NFL at 6'4", 220. At Notre Dame, he didn't catch a ton of balls, but you know, predominantly, you know, he's playing with guys that couldn't throw. You know, Wimbush earlier in his career for a year and a half, and then 
they switch over to Ian Book, who certainly does not have a howitzer for an arm. He's not a guy that's going to play up, you know, a, a Kelvin Johnson type athlete down the field. So, you know, does Boykin have that skill set where, where, you know, he can, he can now leverage his athletic gifts in the NFL? We'll have to see. But, you know, at, at that point in the third round, um, the juice is going to be worth the squeeze there. You know, you roll the dice and see what happens. A lot of big physical receivers, you know, just going through your rankings again. You have like Hakeem Butler, for example, 6'5", 227, and he's your wide receiver one. Uh, those are in your rankings that you published last week. Uh, those are on rotoworld.com if anyone wants to check those out. And as I kind of roll through other analyst projections, that's generally higher than most. You know, I actually, I think it was last week I grabbed the average aggregate rating from, I think, five or six different uh, top 100 big boards, and I think he was fifth among receivers and then like that mid 40s to high 40s overall so basically why is he wide receiver run for one for you and and where do you actually expect him to go on draft day we'll we'll start with where do i expect him to go that one is way up in the air you know because there are all these divergent opinions about his projection you know the last time i checked the odds on an offshore sports book that you know there's there are very few that have them out there right now but one of them does hakeem is actually number two in the odds of the first receiver off the board you know, DK Metcalf remains the prohibitive favorite, but I've been saying this, you know, from the outset that I think there's there's perhaps an even money shot that DK Metcalf is not the first wide receiver, and I don't rank DK Metcalf until five. So if, if folks out there uh, like to lay anything down, that might be one you want to get in on because, you know, Butler's got decent odds with that. But, you know, with regards to the evaluation itself, coming into the season, the NFL was not super high on him, you know, and, and those, those um, you know, scouting services that inform a lot of the opinions we get, um, in May, June, July, et cetera, uh, you know, the Blastos and stuff like that, they had low grades on Hakeem Butler. So coming into the season, he had this, this big burden of proof on him. Um, you know, he'd, he'd never been a featured receiver in college. He was just a two-star recruit. He only played 13 games his last two uh, years in high school for reasons outside of his control. Um, in Texas high school football suspended him um, his junior year because he had to move from Hakeem had to move from Baltimore down to Texas. He lived with his cousins, the Harrison twins, who went on to play at Kentucky and then in the NBA or whatever. Um, he Hakeem had to move down there. He didn't have any other place to go to live. Um, and Texas football suspended him because uh, they said he he had moved for football reasons. And so he came into college really raw. He also played with Stephen Sims in, in high school, so he didn't get all the targets either. So then he goes, you know, Iowa State picks him off as this 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 two star. Well, they, you know, obviously he was super raw. He was just, you know, a big kid that could move pretty good. Um, so they had to, you know, sort of build him up, and they did. You know, they developed him. And then, um, you know, in 2017, he, he was finally um, polished enough where he could get on the field and contribute and, and use those gifts. And he acquitted himself very well as the number two receiver to Alan Lazard. You know, Lazard is playing a lot in the slot, which is like what Iowa State likes to do with some of these, you know, they're good. They're number one big receivers or whatever because their quarterbacks are typically mediocre or worse. And their offensive lines have been awful, you know, the past three, four years. Um, need to get the ball out quick. So that's what they did with Lazard. So we saw Butler play a lot on the outside. And then this year we got to see him, you know, as well playing a lot in, in the slot. So we've seen Butler play everywhere. Um, and then this year we just saw an enormous developmental leap uh, from Hakeem where, um, you know, before there there was more raw aspects of his game. You know, it was, it was a lot of just winning with uh, physicality and size and movement. Um, and, and this past season we got to see him do um, more things. You know, I mean, he he was making some ridiculous catches. Um, he proved to be um, one of the class's best receivers after the catch. You know, he's just, he's a monster. He's very difficult to get down, runs with determination. And also downfield, 
even though, and I'll, I'll get to this in a second, why other people are not as high on Hakeem as, as I am, uh, he, he finishes the number one deep ball receiver in college football by any metric. You know, you want to go counting stats, you want to go PFF grades, you know, whatever. He was the best downfield receiver in college football, and it was not particularly close. And that was in spite, in lieu of, uh, he, he had an extremely high drop rate, a troublingly high rate drop rate where he, he dropped like um, his drop rate was like 16 and a half percent, like something like that, which is very high. Obviously, um, you don't like to see that. Um, and, and the stance of a lot of other evaluators is, um, you know, guys that 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 have a, you know, a drop rate over, you know, 12, 13 percent or whatever. They just don't uh, you know, pan out in the NFL. They don't they're not number one NFL receivers. You categorically cannot do it. Um, and, and so there's been a lot of discounting of Hakeem, both because he had to work from behind, you know, where, where the other scouting services didn't like him. And that informed a lot of opinions of some of the thought leaders in the draft process. And so he was always rated lower during the season, you know, even when he was dominating, you know, almost from the start at Iowa State this year, just abusing big, big 12 cornerbacks. Um, despite that, you know, he, he was still being ranked, you know, way down the board, you know, fifth, sixth round guy, um, fourth round guy or whatever. Um, and I, I see it a bit differently. You know, the, there's no issue with Akeem Butler's hands. You know, he drops the ball a bunch, but there's not an issue with his hands, like, as appendages. He's, he's not Andy Isabella where he's, like, a body catcher, and, he, and he's not, like, you know, wearing oven mitts out on the field or anything. You see him make ludicrous catches. I mean, like, there, there's a bunch of examples of this. My favorite one, because I was watching live, so he played Kansas, um, and he, he just singed, you know, the, the safety downfield um, and he was just unabridged to the end zone, free six points. And uh, their their freshman quarterback, Brock Purdy, underthrew him by a minimum 20 yards. The, the ball ends up landing like the 20-yard line on the field or whatever. Hakeem slams on the brakes, works back, furiously works back to the ball, levitates over the, def- the Kansas defensive back, catches it over his body. Um, comes down with the ball, lands on top of the, the defensive back. Essentially, the defensive back only stays on its feet because he's holding on to Akeem's arm, you know, like a little kid holding on to his dad's arm or whatever. And, and so the kid manages to stay up because of that. And then Akeem basically just throws him off to the side, sprints to the end zone, you know, and the, the safety still had an angle on him, and Akeem was ma- managed to get there anyway. Um, so you saw him make ridiculous catches, ridiculous plays after the catch, whatever. Um, but he did have a lot of drops. And I want to suggest to people um, a couple different um, alternate explanations for this or context for this so that they can think about the the hands issue, because that's basically the only issue on Hakeem Butler's evaluation. It's it's the major red flag in his evaluation is number one, the rawness thing, Um, you know, again, an extremely raw player. And, you know, when, when, when you're talking about a guy, he does not know yet how to create those, that extra split second, you know, like when, when, when the ball is coming down, you know, he gets out of his break or whatever. Nikhil Harry's great at this, where, where he creates his, his micro spaces or, or micro fractional of a second, where he gives himself a little bit longer, gives himself a better view of the ball, you know, get, gets himself in a better angle for it. Hakeem's not quite there yet. He creates those opportunities with his length and, you know, with his athleticism. Um, but in terms of craftiness, it's just not there yet. You know, he's, again, he's, he's getting more and more refined, but not quite there yet. Um, the, the other thing is, well, two other things. Um, his catch radius is one of the more enormous catch radiuses we're ever going to see in the NFL. You know, Hakeem was 95 percentile or above in everything that has to do with physical dimensions, height, weight, uh, hand size, arm length, uh, wingspan, everything, you know, he's 95th or above. Um, and so his catch radius is absurd. And so, you know, th- there was the old thing like in the nineties the before, you know, before baseball had things like zone range, you know, like different ways to quantify defense where like you'd see things where like Ozzie Smith, 
who everyone recognizes like, you know, the best defensive shortstop in baseball where, you know, some of these years he had like a ton of errors, you know, and it was like, well, how does Ozzy, if he's the best, you know, if he's the best defensive shortstop, why does he have 25 errors in a season? And the obvious explanation is because, well, Ozzy Smith has way more range than the other shortstops. So the other shortstop can't even get to some of these balls. Ozzy gets there, you know, and, and was trying to make a ridiculous play and ends up airmailing the thing or whatever, punts it. Um, and that, in, in some cases, that's what happened with Akeem. That accounts for some of these drops where it's balls that other receivers absolutely would never have even gotten in the position to allow it to hit off their hand, you know, because, you know, th- this guy's got the, the catch radius of an Indian god or something. Um, and, you know, so, so that's the other thing. And then the third thing I would say is Hakeem Butler was the only receiver on Iowa State this year. You know, they had two offensive players, and that's literally it. It was him and David Montgomery. And so David Montgomery, you know, the offensive line would cave right away, and David Montgomery would be fighting off eight guys behind the line of scrimmage or whatever. And then with Hakeem, it was when they didn't run, they were looking for Hakeem, you know, whether it was out of the slot for, for free yards or what they like to do more with Hakeem because he's so good at it, transcendently good in my opinion, going downfield. And so Lazard couldn't do as much of that. Lazard is more station to station, um, whereas Hakeem, you sent him down the field uh, more often. And he had to, again, he had to do everything, and he's playing with a mediocre uh, true freshman quarterback who underthrew him quite a bit. And Hakeem was, was trying real hard to do all that stuff. So he, he was trying to do everything, and he had to do everything, you know, as far as Iowa State's aerial offense. So he had a, he had a much bigger portion on his plate than a lot of the other receivers. And I think that, um, you know, goes to some of them as well. The drop issue is something you have to uh, factor in. But I would say, um, you know, whereas other people are saying, you know, this big risk inherent in Hakeem Butler's profile, I would disagree with that, you know, because it's, it's a lot of these people that are saying with DK Metcalf, they're dreaming on DK Metcalf. DK can't move side to side. We only ever saw him on the left side in college. All he does, he's a north-south um, explosive athlete that can can take the, the top off the defense, but he doesn't really have ball skills either. You know, he's got a troubling uh, you know, catch rate as well. Not maybe not quite as troubling, but he wasn't in nearly the same opportunities. You know, as as Akeem. And the, the other thing is, DK has very, very serious medical concerns, and in my opinion, um, an, an unhealthy physique. Um, you know, where he he tested with a you know one and a half percent body fat. That machine has a two and a half percent margin of error. But even you know, if it, if it really screwed up on his readings at four percent, which is where the you know it's the range of like the body cutting or the the weight cutting bodybuilders. So, you know, I have a lot more question with that profile with Akeem. The the floor. If he never, let's just say that that I'm wrong and his hands are what they are. Let's just say that they are stone hands and I am incorrect in my my you know my assessment of it. Even if that is the case, and even if he never becomes like you know, this crazy good receiver in the intermediate area. I, I think he's going to be good in the intermediate area because, you know, the size running, you know, after the catch, all that kind of stuff. But let's just say he doesn't. At the very worst, you get an absolute downfield stud, absolute downfield stud, a guy that other people, because of the physical dimension, it's extremely difficult to cover the guy. You know, and he comes down with balls you know, faster. You know, I mean, straight line speed's great. You know, and the, the guy levitates in the air. You know, one of the one of the few things that his testing profile where he wasn't, you know, top of the line was was vertical, and it was funny because vertical is the one thing that I didn't I didn't care what he jumped because I saw that kid levitate in college where he hangs in the air. Um, at, you know, he's like a small forward basically, you know, getting up there or whatever. So I don't have those questions about um, Hakeem that some of these other guys have. Now I do have enough of a question to say not rank Hakeem in the top ten. You know, even though I think. You know, he could become some, some sort of like amalgamation of like Mike Evans or, or Plaxico, but there are enough 
uh, questions where you do drop him just a bit on the overall board. So I mentioned TJ Hawkinson earlier, and I know that you're extremely high on him, and you've been riding that train for a long time. And I want to get in a, a relevant mailbag question here before you go. Uh, for those of you listening, remember to check out the show on Twitter, at High Motor Pod, for the occasional mailbag, especially before the draft. Got a great array of guests. Uh, we have one here, a tight end-inspired question from uh, Gabriel Duran. Looks like he's down there from Temple, Texas. And he asked the following, with the recent Austin Safarian Jenkins signing, will the Patriots now opt to draft a wide receiver or interior defensive lineman in the first round and a bonus question does the Safarian Jenkins signing rule out the possibility of the Patriots drafting another tight end within the first three rounds a lot lot of pieces to that so let's just break it down into one of them here and uh, you know we just talked about receivers a little bit but let's take the interior defensive line part of it so if we're sitting here in the the late 20s getting closer to the, the Patriots at 32 and Patriots fans are looking at 32 wondering if an interior defensive lineman could be coming who could be among that group for them at 32 in the interior defensive line? Jerry Tiller, he's one. Um, he's a kid from Notre Dame that I love. I, you know, I, I think Jerry Tiller is really, really good. And he's a guy, you know, in, in a similar way, you know, we talked about some of these guys who were hurt by contact. Jerry Tiller was killed by contact in college because he's a natural three technique who was forced to play as an O's tackle earlier in his career. Like as a, as a guy who would occupy blocker, he can't do it. That's not his game. He's a penetrator. Um, and then they, you know, they finally played him, uh, finally moved him to three tech last year and he was dominant, you know, his, uh, his pass rushing grade um, in the interior, the only guy that was even, I, I believe he tied Quinn and Williams for pass rush grade on the interior. His counting stats were not, um, you know, as impressive, but uh, I saw pro football focus stat where um, Jerry Tillery had the most wins in pass rush that, that were not uh, uh, counted as quarterback hurries in the nation. So, you know, he, he causes a lot of disruption and just because of context where the quarterback happened to be when he, when he broke through the line, stuff like that, you know, the, some of that didn't get into his counting stats, but he is extremely disruptive in there. And that was his first year at three technique. Um, Tessin is a fabulous athlete, you know, he's six, six as well, you know, real big kid, just south of 300 pounds. So he's a kid that could get down there that I could see him going with. You know, the, the other thing is, you know, the, the Patriots, a lot of times they'll pick off those, you know, five technique, three, four defensive ends and round three and four that, that sort of fall flowers, you know, uh, a, a few years back would be an example of that. There's some guys in this class that fit that mold where they almost have to be three, four defensive ends. And so four, three teams um, are probably going to bypass them, which, which is going to cause them to drop down the board in a similar way as what ended up happening with flowers. But Zach Allen's a kid from Boston college where I think that he has to play uh, three, four defensive end, because I, I don't think he rushes the passer well enough that a four, three team can justify playing him there. Even, you know, even though he's a good player and he, he rushed the passer real well at Boston college, I don't know that that aspect of his game, you know, which is, you know, based on, you know, his, his, his frame and how hard he tries basically, but he's just like an average athlete. I, I don't think in the NFL, you know, as a, as, as a four, three defensive end, I don't think it's going to translate that, that part of his game as a pass rush. I don't think you can take a bath on that there. So I think he's got to play, the three, four defensive end. And then, you know, he kicks inside the, the three technique when it's the, the nickel situation or whatever. I think a guy like Allen or a guy like Charles Amenahu from Texas is another guy that probably has to be a three, four defensive end. And so those kind of guys, if, if, if I'm the Patriots and something that they've done a lot um, in, you know, in these recent years, 
um, guys like that, fitting that profile that, that are these specific things where four or three teams are just going to be like, I, I don't know what we can do with that kid. Um, I, I think those are some of the guys that would fall. So maybe the Patriots with that position um, could wait until, you know, whether it's round three or in round four and pick off a guy that probably should go higher just based on, you know, pure talent, pure skill level. But, you know, they're sort of earmarked for this one specific scheme that the Patriots happen to run. Thor Nystrom, NFL Draft and college football writer for Roto World all over the 2019 NFL Draft like he is every single season. If you're not, check him out on Twitter at ThorKU and all of his rankings, reports, uh, etc. on RotoWorld.com. Hey, always a pleasure. Safe travels this week. I really appreciate the time. Andrew, thank you so much. Appreciate it, man. Talk soon. Let's give away some crap here. Like I said in the open, giveaway question here, and it's going to be this one. We spun the pick wheel with Dane and Thor, kind of a a different way for Thor, but this is going to be a giveaway question based on something Dane said. The question, I asked him what is the dream first-round pick for the Falcons at number 14. Which player did Dane say is the dream pick for the Falcons at number 14? Again, Dane gave the dream pick for the Falcons at number 14. Tweet or DM the answer to at HighMotorPod. At HighMotorPod, depending on how many answers we get, I'll most likely throw all the correct answers into a list and randomly sort to get a winner. The winner will get some free Hero Sports apparel. Which player did Dane Brugler say is the dream first-round pick for the Atlanta Falcons at number 14? If you're looking for some more NFL Draft content, hit that subscribe button for the High Motor Podcast. Next week, I'll have some draft stuff as we move toward the first round of the draft on Thursday, April 25th. But for today, let's call it. Thanks again to Dane and Thor for joining the show, breaking down the 2019 draft. And thank you to you all for checking out the show. Hit up the show on Twitter, at HighMotorPod. Answer that giveaway question. Maybe you'll get some free stuff sent your way. This is the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter because deep inside the feeling still remained the same we talked of knowing one before you've met and how you feel more than you see and other worlds that lie in spaces in